This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Rob Tombrella is a pastor at Grace Church and the speaker on this message. My name is Rob. If we've never formally met, I'm uh, one of the pastors here. So I want to say thank you again for coming and, and participating at Grace Church on a Sunday where you could be anywhere. So thank you so much for, for being here. And uh, just want to catch you up, particularly if you knew, of where we've been in, in our sermon series, which our teaching time of opening up God's Word and just going through it line by line. We've been in a, a series called The Good Life, and it's all about the Sermon on the Mount, one of the most famous sermons of all time, the sermon that Jesus uh, spoke, and it's in Matthew chapter 5, and we are going to be on page 473. If you don't have a device and you just want to look on it on a actual paper, there's a Bible underneath you or in the scene in front of you, just turn to page 473, and we're in Matthew chapter 5. And we're just going to look at two verses today, Matt, uh, ch- chapter 5, verse 31 and 32, and it's a very sensitive topic. That's kind of my on-ramp into this message. Hello, this is a very sensitive topic because it is about divorce. I was asked on uh, Friday to, if I could text in what my sermon title was, was going to be. And man, I was just knee-deep in this topic on just the pain and the sensitivity that surrounds this. And I was thinking, how do I encapsulate that into a sermon uh, title? And then it, 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 came, it came to me, Jesus, Divorce, and Hope. Uh, divorce is very painful, but if we start with Jesus, we're going to move uh, towards hope, no matter what's in the middle, uh, and, and no matter how painful, how difficult, or how challenging, we will move towards hope if we start with Jesus. So that's my title, Jesus, Divorce, and Hope. And we're just going to look at two, uh, two simple verses here, but we bring a lot into this uh, because this is a, a part of our culture, all a part of all of our lives, this topic of Divorce. So what I'm going to do is read these two verses, and then we're going to pray. We've already prayed, prayed many times, but we're going to pray again and invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us and help us as we go into these verses together. And then I, I want to share uh, quickly what Jesus is not teaching in this passage, and then move to what he is teaching in this passage. So let's read it together and pray, and, and we'll get going with that. Verse 31 says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we invite you to help us as we process these words. This is a hard word and and potentially very confusing word. And so Holy Spirit, we open up our hearts to you and we open up our minds to you. We ask for clarity and we ask for wisdom, discernment, help, and counsel and encouragement because that's what you do. And you surround your word with those kinds of, of ideas of encouragement and help. So we invite you to have your way in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 
All right, first I'd like to go into what Jesus is not teaching. Because as I said before, we all come into this topic with, with our own thoughts. In, in some cases, some teaching that we, we, we bring into this. Uh, some life experiences, all of us, in terms of divorce and separation and, and, and the pain that surrounds that. So uh, I just thought it'd be helpful to get, get right out of the gate what Jesus is not teaching in this passage. And number one... He is not teaching a comprehensive teaching on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. The Bible has a lot to say on the topic of singleness. Singleness is described in the Bible as a gift. Sadly, in the evangelical church, oftentimes the gift of marriage is highlighted as the ultimate gift, but the gift of singleness, not so much. And the Bible does not teach that. The Bible teaches that uh, singleness is a gift. The Bible teaches that marriage is a gift. Uh, and there's a lot that surrounds those topics. Um, Paul talks a, a lot about it in 1 Corinthians. He talks a lot about it in 2 Corinthians and Ephesians chapter 5. And Peter mentions it in 1 Peter. And it's talked about in 1 Timothy and in Titus. So suffice it to say there are these big, broad topics about uh, marriage uh, and about how marriage reflects union with Christ, Paul will, will, uh, will talk about. And that's not what Jesus is saying here. And, and Jesus will speak about marriage in other places besides the Sermon on the Mount. So it's good to think about this as a point, these two verses as a point in a broader sermon. The Sermon on the Mount is a, is a, is a, a broad teaching about how, how we are driven to these external religious behaviors, but on the inside we can justify evil desires and and, and move on with our life apart from thinking about how it affects other people or how God thinks about that. Uh, the Bible says things about how to relate to a believing spouse, how to relate to an unbelieving spouse. The Bible says things about uh, surrounding the topic of marriage and divorce, things like what to do in a situation of abuse and the need to involve the civil authorities that God's provided. The Bible talks about separation of church discipline and when that happens and how that should happen. And all of that surrounds this very, very, very sensitive topic. So Jesus in this moment is not giving a comprehensive teaching on those big, big topics. He is speaking specifically to a unique teaching of that day. He's exposing that unique teaching. And he is talking about uh, divorce and, and, uh, and how it relates to, to God and so, but not bringing a, a, a bigger teaching beyond that. So that's first, not comprehensive. Number two, Jesus is not teaching that all divorce is wrong. So do you see that right there in the text? Except on the ground of sexual immorality, there are grounds for a biblical divorce where there is an innocent party subject to a situation pursuing divorce and, and that's not wrong. He says it here. Sex outside of marriage is grounds for divorce. It, it, it's, not, uh, it's not commanded. It's not required. Uh, it's, it, or anything like that. It, it, faithfulness and, and prayer and all of those things can, can cause somebody to say, I don't want to act on that grounds. I have biblical grounds. I'm not going to move on that because I don't feel like God's calling me to do that. Uh, but that is grounds for divorce. In fact, uh, Joseph was described as a just man in the Christmas story. Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, was described as a just man uh, when he was unwilling to put Mary to shame when he resolved to divorce her quietly because he assumed that there was sexual immorality and Mary had been unfaithful to him 
Um, and the Bible can describe him as a just man, even as he's pursuing divorce in that situation. Paul will raise the issue of abandonment from an unbelieving spouse as grounds for divorce, and Jesus doesn't mention it here. And he talks a lot about that uh, in another passage of the Bible. So, so again, uh, he's speaking to a specific issue. He's not talking about how all divorce is wrong. And he even mentions a, an exception right here in terms of sexual immorality. Number three, and I wrestled with whether or not to include this uh, because I, I took it out and I thought, no, I need to, I need to, I need to put it back in because, uh, because it just comes up. And I've in, been in ministry for 20 years and I've just seen how sometimes this, uh, the narrative gets weighted a certain direction. And he, here's also what Jesus is not saying, that women are the ultimate cause of divorce. I feel like it needs to be said. I know we, we could be switching in a culture where men are now kind of always the, the, the fall or the blame. There's plenty of blame to go around in the divorce. And, and maybe it's different now, but historically in our country and certainly around the world and culturally in most cultures, uh, women are blamed for the divorce. And in some cases, they have to initiate the divorce and then are blamed for it. And uh, I think it's important to note that in this section and in the section before that, Jesus is, seems to be speaking, he's speaking to everybody, but, but men are the example here. Uh, in the case of, of lust, let him, let him, let him. And in this passage, his wife, his wife uh, makes her. So there's an addressing of men. It's almost like, Men, I'm speaking to you. Women, listening too. The principle applies to you too. But he's he's addressing men. I just think that's important because uh, you may have been in a situation where this passage was taught, and it just left you. If you're a woman, it just left you with the effect that kind of, you know, the the woman should have been more. The woman should have done more, and it's just kind of her fault. Particularly if you read that last phrase, anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Do you read that? You kind of pull it out of context, and then you just sort of shift blame to a woman. So Jesus is not teaching that. I hope you'll see that by the end of this message, that, um, that for some, somehow women are the cause or the ultimate fault of divorce. He's not teaching that. Number four, Jesus is not teaching that divorce is the unforgivable sin. That it's irreparable. You, you've, you've earned a stigma for life. You've earned this mark on you. And now you must live according to that mark and that stigma. Uh, or that it's, it's just irre, irre, irreparable. Irredeemable. That God can't fix you or he can't fix a marriage. Jesus is described over and over again as a redeemer. And a redeemer buys back what's scratched and dented and transforms it and reworks it into something glorious and beautiful and amazing. And for his glory, he takes our failures, listen, because that's all he has to work with. That's all he's got. He's got our failures. And he takes our failures, whether it's a failure in divorce or marriage or any other kind of failure, he takes those failures and he buys those failures back And he transforms those and he uses it for his glory and can transform something that's very, very ugly, something that's very, very painful, and turn it into something very beautiful for his glory. And sometimes that takes time, but it it always happens. He always takes what we give to him and redeems it and changes it. 
uh, as was mentioned earlier, we do a, a course called Reengage, and there are sort of three missions of, of Reengage, uh, our marriage ministry, and it's, it's stated on the book. You get the book, it's stated right there. Reconnect, reignite, and resurrect. That this, this, this ministry has seen marriages certainly reconnect and spark the, the flame that was, that was there initially. But listen, also to resurrect the dead marriage, a marriage that just everybody around it says it's over and done and final and divorced. There have been people taken re-engaged, divorced, and come out on the other side with a new sense of hope and calling and seen God resurrect something that was over and closed and done. And, and I, I've seen that. Uh, Michelle and I, two of Michelle and I's closest friends were divorced, and we got we, we were up close and personal because we were they're close friends of ours, and they walked through a painful divorce. And everybody ar- around looking in on this would say, it's over and done, it's final, it's dead, it's, it's, it's legally, I mean, it's even legal, There's, it's, just a, it's over. And yet we saw God intervene and step in and resurrect, and I actually got to officiate uh, that, that, that marriage, that remarriage. And that was over 15 years ago, and they're going strong to this day. And uh, so it's, it's a beautiful story of resurrection, and God can do that. I, I have to say that. I, I, some people don't even want to hear that. I understand not wanting to hear that if you've just been through a very painful divorce. And yet, I have to say that we serve a God who resurrects and can change, and, and we have to believe that he can, he can resurrect even, even a final uh, a, a, a divorce. He can do that. And even if he doesn't want to resurrect that marriage, he can change you and he can resurrect you. He can lift you up out of something that's very broken and and redeem anything in uh, in your life. And and so so we we have to say that when we come into this topic of divorce. It's not unforgivable or irreparable. So, So let's move into what is he teaching? What's Jesus teaching here? on this very controversial topic. Well, here's what he's teaching. Number one, you can hide behind a law to justify selfishness. This has been the theme of the Sermon on the Mount, is that a a religious community can create laws just out of the thin air and even take a law out of context and then build a culture around that law and and do that in such a way that you're justifying your own selfishness because you want to live the way you want to live if I can hide behind this law. If I've got a law and I can point to a law, then I can just do whatever I want hiding behind that. And and I've got even a chapter and verse to show you uh, if you were to argue with my intentions and and that kind of thing. And and what is this that, that people are hiding behind? Well, look at verse 31. He says, it was also said. In other words, this is the going idea of the day. This is what everybody taught. This is what everybody believed. This is what your mom taught, your grandma taught. This is what coworkers believed. And it's this. Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. What Jesus is addressing is that teaching. Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. That's the idea that he's coming against. Not every area of marriage and divorce, but this particular teaching he's addressing, and it's the most popular teaching as it related to divorce in a very moral culture, 
And that is, give her a certificate of divorce and everything's okay. But then he says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So what is the certificate of divorce that he is referencing? The certificate of divorce comes up in Leviticus. Leviticus is a, a book in the Old Testament. And basically, it's, it allowed for divorce for indecency, is how it's written, which is understood to mean immorality, sexual immorality. There was a, a divorce that you could take place if there was sexual immorality, similar to what Jesus is saying here. A certificate of divorce for indecency meant sexual immorality, but what this religious community did, the scribes and the Pharisees, and, and for hundreds of years really, is they took that law, and in order to be super spiritual, they said, you know how we don't break that law? Is we just create like a law around that law. And then we'll be really spiritual. And then in some cases, they would build a law around that law and a law around that law. And so there were these, these people that said, if, if we don't break that law, then we don't break the law. And you know this happens today in uh, the evangelical Christian world. I could share examples, but I will be self-controlled and not do that. But that happens a lot. There's this temptation towards hyper-spirituality to say, if we, don't, uh, we won't break that law if we create this culture and, uh, and it, that we create and maybe throw some biblical principles in there, and then we will not break that law. Well, that got so crazy weird in the culture that it, it ironically went completely a, a, apart from what God said in the book of Leviticus. And so, which you can imagine, the farther you get away from the Bible, the, the weirder, it, weirder it gets. So in the Mishnah, here's how it literally is written. A man may divorce his wife even if she spoiled a dish for him. Like, hello. <laughs> Do you think there's any men that took advantage of the law as it was written, spoiled a dish? Are you, are you kidding me? Any, any ladies spoil a dish? Okay. You think you have all, ample opportunity to pull out the Mishnah and say, hey, check it out. I don't want to divorce my wife. I got the certificate right here. I'm ready to sign. And she spoiled a dish for me. And, well, there it is. It's in the Mishnah. It's not really what Leviticus is about, but there it is. Uh, it also says... He may divorce her even if he found another fairer than she. I mean, how hurtful is that? How, how painful is that? Even if I find somebody that's, that's fairer. Now, that happens today in our culture, right? That happens in our culture today, and we can live to that law. I fell in love with this other person, and that's, that becomes my law. I fell in love. That's the law. It happened. It, I'm in that place now, and there I've got reason for for divorce but here they 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 think this is absolutely moral this is exactly what they're almost pointing to the bible in this way and saying see the mishnah says this so i'm free and clear all i need to do is get the certificate of divorce we sign and we are done and women in this culture were being dismissed left and right pushed out under moral pretense under moral justification people pointing to what they understood was the Bible and saying, there you go. I've got reason to dismiss you. 
And remember the woman at the well. She was dismissed like four times, and then she ended up living with somebody that was not her husband. She probably gave up on the institution of marriage altogether because she was probably dismissed over and over and over again and kind of kicked to the curb and forced into another marriage and forced into another marriage because what else are you going to do? In in that culture, women were not, uh, they needed to provide for themselves. They needed to provide for their kids. And, And so they needed to remarry in order to do so. And so this was a, a horrible practice, is a horrible idea, and was all thought to be super religious, and you were even viewed as godly because you're pointing to the Mishnah and doing all this. Now, Jesus takes on this teaching over and over again in the New Testament. I mean, this is the controversy of the day. So if, you, if you're in Matthew right now, you can flip over to Matthew 19, and the certificate of divorce controversy shows up in Matthew 19. That's the big teaching, the certificate of divorce controversy. Like that was the big deal of the day. And they were always trying to trap him with this. And if they could just get him to to say he didn't agree with it, then that meant he didn't agree with the book of Leviticus and he didn't agree with Moses and that he was a heretic after all. So in Matthew 19, in verse 3, the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Like, that's not a leading question, right? (laughs) I mean, hello. I mean, can you hear the accusation in that? Can you hear I'm leading the witness with a question like that? I'm trying to trap you. And verse 4 says, he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? So Jesus goes to Genesis when they want to go and hang out in Leviticus. So Genesis before Leviticus. So he goes before all of that. And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. This is what Jesus believes about marriage. uh, A man and woman are a part of a family unit. They leave that unit. They are joined together. They leave and they they cleave together. They hold fast to one another. And these two people become one flesh before God. And they're joined together. And then he says, what therefore God has joined together. So this is something God has done. He brings these two people together. And they're spiritually joined together. Let not man separate. And that means obviously don't, don't let another person intrude into that relationship but that also means don't let man's, <clears throat> man's laws or man's pretend laws that try to make you look spiritual intrude in that or give you some reason to not hold fast to that joined relationship. Well, they're not satisfied with that. So verse 7 says, they said to him, <clears throat> why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send, and send her away? So they're like pressing him on the Bible always a bad move, always a bad idea to press Jesus on the Bible. Uh, But they do so. They do it over and over again. Try to trap him with the Bible. Satan tried to do the same thing. If you remember the, the, anyway, I won't chase that down. But anyway, bad idea. So they said, what about Moses? Moses said, give her a certificate of divorce and send her away. Are you disagreeing with the Bible? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Again, 
he goes to Genesis. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. He gets at their hearts and says, listen, I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to trap me. You're trying to get me to, to say I disagree with Moses. And I'm not disagreeing with Moses. You don't understand what Moses said. I'm going back to Genesis and I'm showing you the way that God created it in, 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 the, in the purpose for marriage. And that exposes their hearts. They were always trying to trap Jesus because their hearts were all about their law and their code and their hearts were not towards God and his heart because the law of God is all about God's nature and his character and his love for neighbor. And that's what the law was all about and that was the intent of the law from the very beginning. But they made it all about them. How can they be elevated in people's sights? And so they hated the way that Jesus did not follow their tiny little written codes. And so over and over again, they try to trap him. Do you remember uh, the story of the man with the withered hand in the synagogue? It says he, he went into a synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand, like a leper. And it was, it was uh, in that day and age... To touch a leper, was, you were believed to be unclean. It just made you not only physically susceptible to disease, but you were like morally unclean. And that's, it just went crazy with that. Well, there's this man with this withered hand, and they ask him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They give him some theological question like, uh, are you crazy? It's a man with a withered hand. But they did it, the Bible says, so that they might accuse him. So there's... We're going to paint him into a corner. And he said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Oh, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? He says, you are hypocrites in your questions. You're hypocrites in the way that you hide behind your law. You're hypocrites in the way that you hide behind your code to justify your selfishness. He says, so it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored healthy like the other. And the Pharisees could not marvel at the grace and the goodness and the mercy of God. They went out and conspired against him to destroy him. That's what religious people do. Super hyper religious people that take God's word and God's even responsibilities in their life and elevate themselves over God, hide behind, uh, hide behind things to justify their own selfishness and just to elevate themselves in front of others ultimately uh, are against God's heart because, uh, and God, and Jesus knows it. Jesus knows it. Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Woe to us when we do this. Woe to us, because he says, you're hypocrites when you do this. He says, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. In other words, you are so passionate about these tiny little laws in your world, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, which is justice and mercy and faithfulness. That's God's heart. God has a heart of justice. God has a heart of mercy God has a heart of faithfulness. And ultimately, God's laws point to that. And when we neglect that to settle on the, the little, we miss it all together. Jesus knows when we hide behind cultural authorities, our own 
modern-day contemporary laws in order to, ju- to justify things that we want to do in our lives, I- including, uh, in this case, divorce. For instance, uh, feelings, our subjective feelings, can serve as a authority so that if somebody says, I just don't feel love for her anymore or him anymore, that can serve as a sort of authority like, how can you argue with that? Like, you've, right. Because uh, you only enter into marriage if you feel that constantly. You have to fall in love. At least that's what the Holiday Hallmark movie says. You have to fall in love. Like, you have to trip and fall into it. And you have to stay there. And if you ever roll out and fall out of love, uh, then, man, uh, you got to get out of that relationship. And so... I don't mean to make I don't mean to make light of that. that but that's a that's a, a law that we can create. If I don't feel it, I can I can step out. I can I can leave. Or if I never really loved, or if I feel a certain sensation when I'm around this individual that I never experienced when I was have been around this person for ten years or twenty years or two years or whatever it is, I'm feeling something there and that subjective feeling can serve as a cultural authority to justify moving forward with a divorce. Or take, for instance, the people in our lives. So sometimes, sometimes we can create a law that says, how about this? If my kids say it's okay, if I can get a sign-off from my kids, that's going to serve for me as reaching this law, reaching this thing that I've created. And if they say it's okay, then I'm going to move forward with it and I'm going to be I'm going to be okay with it. Or if my friends say it's okay, or family, or if my church says it's okay, or if my boss, or whoever it is, if they say it's good, then I'm, I've reached that barrier and I'm, I can move forward uh, with it. And so we create these, these ideas, just like they did back then, that if, if we do this, and then we can move forward with anything that we want to do and neglect the weightier matters of marriage Marriage has a lot to do with justice. Marriage has a lot to do with mercy. Marriage has a lot to do with faithfulness. And, uh, and that's ultimately what marriage is, is about. Um, okay, so that's number one. Number two is that sin always brings suffering. There's always this effect of suffering. Sin always brings it into our lives. So look at verse 31. He says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. This is a hard word, and we need to hear this. Makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So Jesus is saying, there's an innocent party in this situation, in this in this." scenario, a woman who has been innocently uh, divorced. Uh, they've been walked out on. They've been sort of kicked away. And, uh, and, and yet there is this word adultery. Uh, how can Jesus say an innocent spouse uh, is free to remarry, and yet at the same time, uh, there's that word adultery? And moreover, uh, how can the new marriage partner also be said to commit adultery? This is a very important question. Well, I think it's important for us to see exactly what Jesus is saying here. 
it says makes her commit adultery. Does not mean that, uh, that she's committing adultery in the way that he is. The NIV, I think, helpfully translates this, the victim of, makes her the victim of adultery. And that's the idea here in the passage. She's found herself in a situation that she didn't ask for, and now she is the victim of adultery. And curiously, and important for us to know today, uh, that victimization follows into the new marriage. Not ongoingly, not forever. This isn't like, you know, uh, even though you're free to marry, that this is like this, uh, it's an adulterous marriage or something like that. He's saying initially upon entrance into this, the fault of the man who divorced his wife unjustly affects not only to the woman who was divorced unjustly, but even her new husband. That it, that, and that's how suffering works. That's how sin and suffering spreads and, and works in our lives. And this is not just in marriage and divorce, but it's in all aspects of our lives. In Romans 5, Paul says it this way, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. You hear that? Sin came through, into the world through one man. I wasn't that man. Y- you weren't that man, I don't think. Uh, just as sin came through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So sin comes through one man, but then death, physical death, suffering spread to all men. And then all men sin, and it continues to spread. So it starts with one and spreads to the many. And that, that death includes suffering. And it's helpful to understand that we live in that tension. We live there. The, the Bible says that there is this, this tension that we live in. We are both willing participants of sin and victims of other people's sins. Hear that, hear that really loud and clear. We are both willing participants of sin and victims of other people's sins. Things that we did not do, things that were done to us, things that were done around us, things that we did not have control over, but that have a Effects on our lives. All of us, all of us have that in our story. In his book, Crosstalk, Michael Imlet, Christian counselor, encourages us to consider three identities as a believer, and I commend them to you. Number one, we are saints. That means we are forgiven and we are new creations in Christ. Praise God, we are saints. Uh, he says, number two, we are sinners in need of growth and change. Not hard probably for me to convince you of that. But he says, number three, and this is hard for us to to grab hold of sometimes, we are also, all of us, sufferers. We are all sufferers. That means we are all victims of other people's sins. Sins of our parents, sins of our city, sins of our community, sins of our nation, sins, just other people's sins. We've been introduced to things Things have been introduced to us, unwelcomed, uninvited, unannounced, that have damaging effects on our lives. The fault does not, in those situations, lie with us. What was I, uh, did I fall into temptation? Yes, I did. And I'm responsible for my own sin. 
And the Bible says I'm responsible for my own sin. Was that introduced to me beyond my, uh, without my asking for it? Yes. And in that sense, you are a victim. And, and, and potentially those effects and those scars have ongoing effects in your life. So hard to see how that affects us in, in terms of divorce. Take, for instance, the topic of pornography, though, that was mentioned last week. If you're struggling with pornography and you're a Christian, it, it's probably not hard for me to convince you that you're a sinner and that it's wrong. You probably know that. You're probably convicted of that. Uh, it, it might be harder for me to convince you that you are forgiven in Christ and, and, and you can always have a new start because you're a new creation in Christ and you have the Holy Spirit and you got the people of God and you can open up about that in community and there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But are you aware that you are also a victim of pornography? That does not minimize your responsibility. It does not, it's not intended to lead to a victim mentality that I'm always a victim and I just kind of live under that identity? No, it doesn't mean that. It does mean that it was probably introduced to you without your desire at some point in your life. And that's the effects of being a part of a world that, that is clouded and surrounded by sin. We are, um, we're victims of the world, the flesh, and the devil, the, the Bible says. The porn industry not only makes us victims, but it creates victims. Every willing participant in the porn industry today was first a victim of it and is still a victim of it. And when we look at it, we're creating future victims, feeding a whole industry that's creating victims. So it's helpful for us to understand that, in, like in this situation, the, the, the new husband, free to, free to, and in some ways justly marrying a woman who was dismissed and, and bound to poverty with, without him marrying her, has the effects of the previous guy's sin. And that's, that's, how, that's life in a fallen world. And Jesus recognizes victims. And he's a good shepherd that knows the ways in which we've been harassed, in, in which things have come our way and made us helpless and, 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 and needy of a shepherd to rescue us and help us. And as I was preparing this, I just thought that there, there might be some of us who are good at taking responsibility and just owning your own sin that need to accept that at some point you were a victim of something. Like maybe you're just struggling with condemnation. Like you're just constantly like, I just need to, it's just always my fault. Well, it is your responsibility, but it might be helpful to get around some people and open up and say, you know what? At some point I was made a victim of this and I didn't ask for it. And I need, I just need to acknowledge that. There, I think there is, there is help. In my life, that has been help, a helpful category to understand and, and, and move, in, move me into a place of healing and, and hope. And there are some of us probably here today that are good at taking responsibility that need to accept that, that uh, not only that you're a victim of something, but uh, that you don't have to remain there. You don't have to stay there. Uh, that the good news of life in the kingdom, the good news of joy in Jesus spreads faster than death. That's actually how, how Paul ends that whole section. He says, you know, sin comes into the world and death through Sin, so suffering spreads. But then he says, but where sin increased, 
grace abounded all the more. Grace is bigger, more powerful, and faster than the effects of sin. Life goes faster than death, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what Jesus is saying on the Sermon on the Mount. This is the good life. The kingdom has broken through with life and hope, and he can reverse and change the effects of death and sin and suffering and usher in life and peace and hope and a whole new story, a whole new narrative you can grab hold of through life in the kingdom. And that's, that is wonderful good news. We don't stay only victims. We move into victory and freedom. Here's the last thing, and, and we'll close, is this. Jesus is teaching in this passage that, passage that the good life is knowing, and I believe increasingly knowing, and growing in confidence that God will never divorce us. He will never walk away. He will never come up with an excuse. He will never, he will never exercise his right to divorce us. Hear that. Because he has rights. He has grounds. And he will never exercise his rights to divorce us. What do you mean he has grounds to divorce us? Are you kidding me? God, does, God loves us. We're all children of God. He has no grounds to divorce us. James 4 says, he, he says in James, James chapter 4, James says, you adulterous people, and he's speaking to Christians, you adulterous people, you adulterers. So if, if this sermon hasn't offended you because you've been called an adulterer, if the uh, sermon last week, if you've ever lusted with, with the intent to have sex with somebody, if that didn't offend you because you were called an adulterer, let James offend you now, okay? You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says with no reason he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? James says we're adulterers because God jealously longs for us. He longs for our affections. He longs for us. And Eugene Peterson translated that section that God is a fiercely jealous lover. Fiercely. Meaning he is never relenting, ongoing, never dry, never cold, never lets up. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't dry out. It doesn't grow stale. Uh, it, it doesn't waver. It's not like our love that ebbs and flows. His love doesn't ebb and flow. He is fiercely jealous in his affections for us and his commitment to us. How fierce? As fierce as the cross. As amazing as the cross. It didn't weaken after Jesus came down from the cross. That same love demonstrated on the cross, that fierce love is for us and towards us to this day. Right now, right here in this moment. You're like, there's no way God loves me like that. That's what the cross says. That's what the gospel says, is that he loves us in this fierce, committed way. One way that this came home to me was, uh, was several years ago when I read the book of Hosea. I was in seminary at the time, and I read this book called Hosea. Anybody familiar with the book of Hosea? It's a wonderful Christmas story. 
okay? It's a wonderful Christmas story. No, I'm just joking. It actually is a Christmas story. Uh, here's how it goes. I was in seminary at the time. I couldn't believe what I, what I came across in this book. There's this guy named Hosea, and he's a prophet. And God comes to Hosea, and he says this, Go take to yourself a wife, hear this, of whoredom, and have children. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. He, he asked Hosea to go do something very painful and difficult and marry a gal who's a harlot, not even a prostitute trying to earn money for her kids or something, just somebody running around. And he, he says, uh, do this because the land commits this against me every day, forsaking the Lord. So he went and he took Gomer, which is a rather unfortunate name, who was the daughter of Diblame, another challenging name. And she conceives and bears a son, and she has a couple more children, and, and they're married together. But at some point early on in the marriage, she runs off, and she goes and is uh, in love with another person and is sleeping around and is, is with this other person. And so Hosea is there with the kids, taking care of the home, taking care of the family, all the responsibilities. And the Lord says to Hosea in chapter 3, go again, go back, go again and love her. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. God says, I know what she's doing and I know her situation and I know your situation. I know that this is a painful ask, but go love her who is loved by another man. And he says, do this even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. I'm asking you, Hosea, to go do what I do Every single day as I pour out my fierce love on the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. And so Hosea writes, so I bought her. I bought her. This is how she viewed herself, willing to be bought he buys her back for 15 shekels of silver and a bag of barley and he says to her you got to come home you must dwell as mine you shall not play the whore you can't belong to another man I'm supposed to be with you. And he brings her back home again. And he loves her as she is. And that whole picture, that whole story points to God who takes to himself a wife. Who's the wife? We're the wife. We're the wife. And he enters into a difficult marriage with a whore, with us.
We turn to other gods. We sleep around. That's what James is talking about. We're in bed with another woman, and it's not God. It's our idols of prestige or success or money or sex or whatever it is. We turn to other gods all day long. We sleep around, but God goes after us again and again and again and again and again and loves us. Genuinely loves us. Chooses to never take away that love. Never remove that fierce love. And buys us back. But listen, not with 15 shekels of silver and a bag of barley. Do you know what he buys us back with? God sends his son. And at the cost of his son, Jesus is made the victim of our adultery. He's made the victim of our adultery. That's the cost. Jesus willingly comes. He willingly enters into being made the victim of our adultery so that anyone who trusts in Jesus, though their sins are like scarlet, what that means is our sins are like bright red and visible to everybody. Though our sins are like that, anybody who connects to Jesus and is married to Jesus are made white as snow. We are made white as the pure driven snow that I pray comes down at Christmas time and reminds us of this passage. That though our sins are all before us, it's glaring. Everybody sees it. Everybody knows it. We are aware of it. And yet, if we're married to Jesus, the opposite happens. He takes on our adultery And he gives us his faithfulness, pure as the driven snow. When I was reading that earlier today, I did did pray, God, I pray it it snows this this Christmas season at some point. Because this is going to sound foolish, but uh, whenever it snows, because it never snows, I like to stare up at it. And I like to just see how far I can see as it's coming down and just capture the Snowflakes, I guess that's what they're called, right? Snowflakes. Uh, capture them as they're coming down, and they just come like, just like millions, right? They just, it's just, it just keeps on coming down. Even though you look down in Texas and it's not, it's not white all over, but if you're staring up while the snow's coming down, and it's just, oh, I just love to just see that image of snow coming down. And that's a picture of God's relentless, fierce love and, and, and glory and righteousness coming down towards us in Jesus Christ. Pure as the fresh driven snow we are all day long. He doesn't stand off stagnant and cold. He's moving towards us. And even today, even today, you might think, man, I, I don't know if God moves towards me with that. But we, read, we sang earlier, sinner wait no more. Love's broken the silence. And his name is Jesus. And here comes heaven is what we sing. So we're just going to close, uh, close with prayer. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.